Fatima foretold attacks against the faith, the New England model. This is a talk given by Mr. C. Joseph Doyle of the Catholic Action League, explaining how many heirs of Russia were first established in the United States in New England, and from there spread to the rest of the country. This talk was part of the conference, Fatima, the moment has come, hosted by the Fatima Center in Manchester, New Hampshire. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's a great pleasure and a privilege and an honor to speak before a gathering of the Fatima Center. I think anyone in America with a Catholic heart knows of the uh, important work of the Fatima Center, and I think anyone also with a Catholic heart is aware of the edifying life and the fruitful ministry and the unfailing fortitude and the enduring legacy of Father Nicholas Gruner. Someday, when the churches are self again, when we've gone through and overcome this modernist crisis, which in its extent and expanse and duration seems to be similar to the Arianism of the early centuries of the church, someday when the church is herself again, perhaps Father Gruner and uh, you know Father Feeney, Brother Francis, Archbishop Lefebvre, will all be recognized for their prophetic wisdom and for their manifest holiness. So again, I'm delighted to be here today. Michael has asked me to speak about the errors of Russia and how they uh, afflicted New England and how that led to their expanse in the United States. Now, most people, when we think of the errors of Russia, what lady was referring to the errors of Russia, is communism. But as I pointed out in a talk I gave at another Fatima Center event back in June in Massachusetts, the original error of Russia, one that preceded communism, one that has outlasted communism in the Soviet Union, one that was far more ubiquitous worldwide, and far more lethal, exponentially so, than communism, is, of course, abortion. Russia was the first Christian country, the first Western country, where there was a movement to legalize abortion. Illegal abortion was widespread, growing, and socially accepted in Tsarist Russia. The communists, abortion informed communism, the communists ratified it, they formally legalized it, they expanded it for a while. Joseph Stalin, when he became the dictator of the Soviet Union, realized that falling birth rates would not contribute to that country's national security and give them enough soldiers for their army and, and workers for their factories and actually restricted abortion for a while. Khrushchev, who was considered the great liberal, actually uh, expanded abortion again, and abortion has outlasted the Soviet Union. And in fact, I think a really hideous statistic about abortion in, in Russia is that uh, the Soviet Union, which Russia is much smaller today a country than the United States, but in the old Soviet Union, the population of the USSR and the USA was roughly comparable. The USA had a slightly higher population. But uh, if you remember, we had about a million and a half abortions, surgical abortions, at the height of the post-Roe period. Russia had about five million. Just astonishing number, maybe three times the number of abortions that we had in the United States for a comparable population. So abortion and population control really has been the uh, perhaps, you know, ten times the number of people have been killed by abortion worldwide than by communism. A hundred million people were killed perhaps by communism, according to the Black Book of Communism, during the century of 1917 to uh, less than a century to uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. You know, that number is perhaps in four years worldwide, the number of abortions. So this is really, a, again, the most lethal era of Russia has been abortion. So how is it that New England, 
became such a center for the population control movement whose um, evil fruits were abortion and contraception and sterilization and eugenics. I think there are several things at work here. One is New England had a history of odium fidei, had a history of radical and very fundamental hostility to the Catholic faith. It was settled by Puritan Calvinists who despised the faith and who uh, believed that the Church of England, Protestant though it was, was insufficiently pure, that's hence we get the Puritan phrase, and too reminiscent of what they called Romanism. If you look at the um, the early Massachusetts colony, there was actually a death penalty for the uh, presence of a priest in colonial Massachusetts. Uh, just on September the 26th, we celebrated the feast of the North American martyrs. But there was another North American martyr. That was Father Sebastian Rail. He was a Jesuit who uh, ministered to the Abenaki Indians in Maine, which was then part of the province of Massachusetts Bay. And he was murdered by Massachusetts militia. Samuel Adams, the great patriot, who is sadly now remembered for a, a brewery in his name, but Samuel Adams believed that papists, Catholics, should be excluded from citizenship and said popery was a greater danger than King George. John Adams, second president, wrote as a young lawyer prior to the revolution, wrote a, uh, an essay called A Dissertation on Feudal and Canon Law and said that the system devised by the Romish clergy was the most refined and the most expansive and the most diabolical worldwide to uh, reduce people to sordid ignorance and to ecclesiastical submission. His son, John Quincy Adams, gave a famous speech that Pat Buchanan often quotes in uh, 1821. This is the speech where he said that with the, uh, we, we don't go forth overseas looking for um, dragons to destroy. We are friends of liberty everywhere, but the guardian and the custodian and the vindicator only of our own. Well, that speech also included some uh, remarks about the Catholic faith, where he basically said that American liberty in a Republican form of government was founded upon the Protestant Revolution. And since Catholics rejected that, we must question whether Catholics would be fit citizens of a free republic. The abolitionist movement, which was a movement basically of Congregationalist and Unitarian ministers in New England, believed not only in freeing people from the physical slavery of the African slave trade in, in the American South, but what they called the spiritual slavery of Roman Catholicism. The American Protective Association, a nativist group, was very active in New England in the late 19th century. 1896, a Catholic, an Irish Catholic, was murdered by a, a mob of nativists who were participating in an APA parade in East Boston. And as late as 1917, the First World War, a WASP state representative from Brookline, Massachusetts, urged that Irish Catholics be lined up and shot, executed, for their opposition to uh, American involvement in the First World War. So you had a history of, uh, of anti-Catholicism, a history of odium today. But you also had something else, a few other factors at work here. You had a turn of the 20th century progressivist movement that was influenced, you might even say defined, by nativism and anti-Catholicism, and which sought eugenicist solutions to the problems that they perceived. Now, our schoolboy histories tell us about the progressive movement at the beginning of the 20th century. It was supposedly according, again, to the average academic text. Everybody learns it in high school. It was a movement to expand democracy. It was a movement for reform. It was a movement to end corruption. And we know about the direct election of senators or the uh, creation of the first federal income tax or civil service reform. But it was much more than that. In fact, even civil service reform was, in a way, infused with nativism and anti-Catholicism. In the 19th century, when men were men, Politics meant patronage, and patronage meant kickbacks. If you were a federal employee, if you worked at a Navy yard or a post office or a, um, a mint or a custom house, 
you would actually kick back a week's salary once a year to the party or to the congressman or the senator that appointed you. Suddenly, at the end of the 19th century, when Irish Catholics, particularly Irish Catholics, were starting to gain political power and gain patronage, suddenly Anglo-Protestant elites found the idea of patronage like uh, Major Renault in Casablanca shocking, shocking. And they wanted civil service reform and merit selection and no more patronage. In fact, the first U.S. civil service commissioner was young Theodore Roosevelt when he was 30 years old. Nativism and anti-Catholicism heavily weighed on progressivism. Both a Republican, Theodore Roosevelt, and a Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, two noted presidents of, that, of the progressive era, referred to Catholic immigrants as hyphenated Americans. If you read, to this day, the standard work on the history of the U.S. Navy in the War of 1812, it was a book by Theodore Roosevelt called The Naval War of 1812, and it's filled with all this kind of um, racial and nativist crack pottery about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon and the Nordic people and how they make better sailors, and he actually goes on to say about the um, Portuguese and the Italians and the Spanish make very poor sailors and were not effective as sailors uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. Obviously, I, Ted never heard of you know, Christopher Columbus or Andrea Doria or Prince Henry the Navigator. We think of these things as coming from Germany, from Nazi Germany, but it was, it was the Anglosphere that informed the Nazis. You know, Hitler was a disciple of Houston Stuart Chamberlain, an Englishman, that had all these racialist theories. This was you know, quite current among Anglo-Protestant elites in the United States, particularly in the Northeast at the time, particularly in the elite culture of the academic. You know, four of the seven... Ivy League institutions were in New England, right? Dartmouth, Brown, Harvard, and Yale. And uh, they all had actually courses taught in departments dealing with eugenics. Charles Eliot, president of Harvard, the descendant of one of the original founders of Massachusetts Bay, was a great promoter of, of an organization to advance the cause of eugenics. So they, they believed that the country was being overrun with uh, too many Slavs, too many Latins, too many people from the Middle East, whether they be Jews or, you know, Syrian and Lebanese Christians, and of course too many Irish, and believe that you had to control the population. And you can do this in many, many different ways, both to limit the births of the undesirable immigrant elements, and also to actually physically restrict their freedom, and in some cases their ability to reproduce. You know, we think of, again, of Nazi Germany when it comes to the idea of compulsory sterilization. And we think of those, I think it was 350,000 people that were sterilized during the 12 years of the Third Reich. It was actually New England that was the precursor to what the Nazis did and informed and influenced what the Nazis did. Eugenics and sterilization really kind of reached a peak here in New England. Now, it, it went all over the country. Indiana, I think, in 1907 was the first country to actually have a sterilization law. But Connecticut was the second one. And right here in New Hampshire, you had one of the largest, uh, something like 700 people were forcibly sterilized in the first half of the 20th century. Again, sterilized against their will. And it was uh, anyone that was considered mentally feeble, judged to be an imbecile or judged to be mentally incompetent. But it really was more than that. It was also anyone that was any kind of deviancy or delinquency or even a physical disability. If you were an epileptic, you could be seized by the state and forcibly sterilized. We find this... Unbelievable today, but this was prevalent in this region less than a century ago. And uh, you actually see this great promotion of eugenics as a way to control the immigrant population. You had the Fitter family contests, and that would be um, 
Protestant ministers would compete and give homilies and sermons on eugenics and the need for population control, and the winner would receive a $500, which is quite a lot a century ago, or a century and a half ago, a $500 reward. They were worried about a disparity in birth rates between immigrants and the native Anglo-Protestant society. You know, in Boston, by the probably the end of the 19th century, you actually had a Catholic majority and a majority of foreign-born Catholics. But one of the other aspects of this was also that you had in New England the affluence to do something about this. You had these kind of population control programs required public funding. They required trained public health administrators, that people that could come from the elite universities like Harvard. So you, you had the resources and you had the elite academic culture here in New England uh, that you didn't have in other parts of the country. And you also very sadly had uh, kind of conformist Catholics who were willing to, um, for the sake of particularly the political class, who for the sake of political power, wanted to appease Anglo-Protestant sensibilities. They had an ethic of assimilation and a, a kind of a, a tradition of accommodation, and they were unwilling to offend the pieties of the secular elites. We actually saw here in New England something like in Massachusetts, 25 different asylums, reformatories, various public schools were opened specifically for the purpose of dealing with the, the mentally disabled, and in which they would be then sterilized if uh, a doctor and the public health administrator decided it was in the public interest. Uh, the Fernald School, Dr. Everett Flood, was a, there was a Protestant, besides, it was Harvard University, and it was public health administrators, and it was uh, mainline Protestant ministers that were the chief advocates of this. There was a sea thirst and chase of the Central Congregational Church in Lynn, Massachusetts, that was a great proponent of this, uh, Reverend Kenneth MacArthur. There was numerous attempts to promote mandatory sterilization. You had birth control and sterilization and abortion, actually legal in Rhode Island, uh, all during this period. Abortion was still forbidden by law in the other states. Uh, birth control was still forbidden by law, but there was a growing movement. In 1934, there was an attempt to legalize sterilization in Massachusetts. It failed through the opposition of the Catholic Church. The Church did play a, a very important role in Maine, in uh, Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, and Connecticut in opposing some of these really uh, evil endeavors. You also had, in 1935, you had a state senator in Dorchester in Boston named John Finnegan, and he just filed a bill to legalize birth control. It was generally believed he had been suborned, that is to say, paid off by um, some elite wasp elements. And fortunately, you had Cardinal O'Connell then, who was the archbishop, and the cardinal basically ended the guy's political career by launching a full attack on him. So that put off birth control for another uh, 13 years in Massachusetts. Now, you're going to find this hard to believe, but the reason that Democrats took over state government in Massachusetts in 1948 was because the Democrats were the pro-life, socially conservative party, and the Republicans were the liberal pro-abortion, pro-birth control party. In addition to some labor referenda, there was a referendum in the 1948 election in Massachusetts to legalize birth control. And it was the Republicans that pushed it, and it was the Democrats that opposed it. And as a result of this, for the first time since before the Civil War, Democrats gained control of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And guess who became the Speaker of the Massachusetts House? Thomas P. Tip O'Neill, who would later go on to be one of the big pro-abortion liberals in Congress and the uh, Speaker of the House, you might say, presided over the McGovernite Revolution in the Democratic Party that turned the Democratic Party into such a left-wing entity. But he came to power and became Speaker because of his he was opposed to birth control. 
remarkable. By the way, James Michael Curley, who was the much maligned mayor of Boston, remember Mayor Curley? He was mayor four times. He was governor once. He was a congressman four times. He went to jail twice. He was a populist. And he predicted in 1948 that this is 25 years before Roe versus Wade. 25 years before Roe. He predicted in 1948 that if you legalize birth control, you will inevitably legalize child murder. He was right about that. And I think we should talk for a moment just about the intrinsic and inseparable connection between abortion and contraception. You know, contraception is the basis legally and constitutionally for abortion. That is to say, Roe versus Wade came about because of two Supreme Court decisions, two Supreme Court decisions that were New England tied, Griswold versus Connecticut and Baird versus Eisenstadt, that invented basically this spurious right to privacy or right to marital privacy that became the basis of Roe. Now, the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution mentions the government cannot go through your personal papers and effects. There is an implicit right to privacy there. But it refers once again to your papers and possessions. It doesn't refer to your uh, carnal conduct. And this was basically invented out of whole cloth. Griswold, Estelle Griswold was the um, Planned Parenthood administrator for a clinic they had set up illegally in New Haven, Connecticut, with the hope of challenging Connecticut's law against birth control. And they brought it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court voted to overturn Connecticut's law. And it was a 7-2 to decision. And the only Catholic on the court was then, actually both Catholics on the court, William Brennan and Byron White, both voted in favor of overturning the law. Now, White, in fairness to him, would become a famous dissenter on Roe and would later also become a dissenter on Casey. His dissent in Roe would actually... Uh, Byron White actually formed the basis, really, of the Dobbs decision in the sense that he said that you know, it was invented out of thin air, basically. He said it was uh, they fashioned a, uh, a right without any reference to the text of the Constitution and, in a famous phrase, disentitled 50 state legislatures. So we want to be understanding towards Byron White, but both Catholics voted for Griswold, and both Catholics voted for Baird versus Eisenstadt. In uh, 1971, there was a second U.S. Supreme Court decision once again, New England-based, this is not Connecticut, but Massachusetts. Thomas Eisenstadt was the sheriff of Suffolk County. Bill Baird, William Baird, who was the uh, son of a Lutheran minister, was the uh, fanatical birth control and abortion advocate. And he had brought a case. Uh, Massachusetts, even after the Griswold decision, still restricted birth control to married couples. And he brought a case to the U.S. Supreme Court, insisting this was um, discriminatory. He prevailed before the court. And one of the consequences of this decision was that you had a legal basis now in Baird versus Eisenstadt for premarital and extramarital sexual activity where uh, anyone could have carnal relations with anyone else and not suffer any uh, legal discrimination. And of course, Baird became the basis, just as Griswold became the basis of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, Baird became the basis of Obergefell and of Lawrence versus Texas, which essentially legalized sodomy. So you saw... Uh, this, um, again, this connection between abortion and birth control. But it's all not just a connection legally and constitutionally. It's a connection morally and practically and culturally in the sense that the birth control pill became the engine of the sexual revolution. If you could separate the unitive and procreative aspects of sexuality, if you can have people engage in carnal relations without fear of pregnancy, which would be a constraint on women of the time, both in terms of uh, their future lives and their reputations, then anything is possible. And abortion and then becomes necessary as the ultimate insurance policy, is the ultimate form of birth control. So, you know, abortion is birth control and birth control is abortion. By the way, since 1960 with the birth control pill, you know, almost all hormonal contraceptives are abortifacient. You know, Judy Brown of the American Life League has estimated that perhaps six times 
six times the number of abortions occurred through the chemical um, chemical abortion as a result of birth control pills than surgical abortions. A hideous, astounding figure. So if you have a libertine sexual culture, you're going to have abortion. Uh, I think it was Cardinal Lustiger, the Archbishop of Paris, said that we have to go to the root problem of this, which is the sexual revolution itself, as a way ultimately of ending the scourge of abortion. By the way, the birth control pill itself was, again, a New England creation. John Rock was the inventor of the birth control pill. He was a Catholic, by the way, despite his kind of Anglophone name. He was a graduate of Harvard. He was actually, he was born in Marlborough, Massachusetts. He uh, went to the High School of Commerce in Boston. He uh, was a graduate of Harvard at Harvard Medical School, and he taught and was a professor at Harvard Medical School. And he was funded largely by Margaret Sanger and by uh, people affiliated with her in the, and Planned Parenthood and in, uh, uh, engaged in a series of tests on Massachusetts women in the 1950s, surreptitiously because birth control was still illegal then. And then um, the birth control pill was... Uh, first marketed in 1957 as a menstrual regulator, and then the federal drug and uh, the, uh, the FDA approved it in 1960 as a contraceptive. So once again, it was a Republican administration, it was the Eisenhower administration, that legalized the use of, of the birth control pill originally. So um, this, again, became kind of the engine for the sexual revolution. I'd like to talk about a couple of families that were involved in this, one Democrat and one uh, Republican. First, I'd like to talk about the Kennedy family. You know, when President Kennedy ran for election in 1960, he gave that famous Houston speech where he basically said he wouldn't allow his uh, Catholic faith to not only influence but in any way inform his public conduct. But he did more than that. He also came out against state aid to parochial schools. He also uh, opposed any kind of diplomatic relations with the Vatican. It was Harry Truman, believe it or not, who was the Grand Master of the Masons in Missouri and the Worshipful Master of the Lodge in Independence who tried to establish diplomatic relations with the Holy See after World War II. He was serious about it because he appointed as the first ambassador General Mark Clark, who was the hero American general that liberated Rome, but he was opposed by uh, Protestant and Masonic opinion and withdrew that. But Kennedy came out early on against any diplomatic relations with the Vatican. But he also came out and said that he would oppose any kind of attempt to restrict liberalized divorce laws, and he also came out and said he would oppose any attempt to restrict birth control. So we see right away the Kennedy family dissenting. We think of Ted Kennedy as the great dissenter on Catholic moral values, but it really goes back to 1960. It was in 1960, during the Eisenhower administration, the birth control pill was uh, approved by the uh, Federal Food and Drug Administration, but it was the Kennedy administration that really expanded it, and it was the Kennedy administration that used Catholic Puerto Rico as a kind of laboratory, a social laboratory, to experiment with the widespread distribution of the birth control pill. And by the way, this was opposed by the Catholic Bishop of San Juan. He was an Irishman, believe it or not, then. It was a missionary bishop. And... uh, John Venari, uh, I think Susan Venari is one of the speakers here in this conference. John Venari at uh, Catholic Family News wrote a wonderful article detailing this, and he talked about how uh, not only did Kennedy do this, but when the Bishop of San Juan complained about it, two Catholic cardinals, Francis Spellman of New York and Richard Cushing of Boston, came to the defense of President John F. Kennedy and criticized the Bishop of San Juan. So the Kennedy administration... Again, an administration of somebody that, whose family came from Massachusetts, ultimately came from Boston, expanded birth control. One of the most scandalous events in the legalization story of birth control was in 1965 in Massachusetts, when after the Griswold decision, it was actually August of 66 when they finished, a decision to uh, Massachusetts legislature to legalize birth control, again in the wake of the Griswold decision. We now know, because of the research of a Boston College graduate student, 
that birth control was legalized in Massachusetts as a result of a deal, a surreptitious deal, that only became known about five years ago, a surreptitious deal that was struck between Planned Parenthood and the Archdiocese of Boston. And this, by the way, this graduate student is not a conservative. He's not somebody on the political right. He's probably a typical progressive of, of B.C. And it's been published in two sources now. It was also published, it was a scholarly paper, and it was again published in Boston College Magazine, which is the alumni magazine of Jesuit Boston College. And apparently Cardinal Cushing was convinced the church was going to change its position on birth control. If you remember, a majority of the appointees that Pope Paul VI put on the commission on birth control were in favor of the church abandoning its historic opposition to birth control. So if you were if you were reading the tea leaves, so to speak, if you were a, somebody that was informed of the inner dealings of the Vatican, you might assume that the commission was going to change. Anyways, Cardinal Cushing actually had a set, his number of priests sat down with some representatives of Planned Parenthood, and they ended up agreeing that the church would not oppose this. And this comes by, at the same time, the Kennedy family is holding a conference in Hyannisport. Robert Kennedy is becoming the senator from New York, in which they bring these dissident theologians like Charles Curran and Richard McCormick, and they want to discuss how to weaken Catholic opposition to both birth control and abortion. And that's where you first see the arguments. Remember these arguments? We can't impose our religion on others. That was at the Hyannisport conference, and that was one of the arguments that Cardinal Cushing's supporters used. The other was, it's imprudent, or it's against the common good. Anyways... We see all of these steps lead eventually to Griswold and lead to uh, Baird. By the way, Catholic, faithful, many Catholic, faithful Catholic legislators, including the one I work for, State Representative Jim Craven and former Senate President Bill Bulger, voted against legalization. So you have Catholic politicians opposing the legalization of birth control and the Catholic hierarchy supporting it. Incredible. I just want to mention one last thing before I go. This was not only a prominent Catholic political family, but a prominent Anglo-Protestant political family, the Bush family. The first national treasurer of Planned Parenthood was Prescott Bush, the uh, U.S. senator from Connecticut. His son, George H.W. Bush, was nominally pro-life when he uh, ran as Reagan's vice president, but he had uh, actually, as a congressman from Texas, by the way, Bush was a congressman from Texas, but he was born in Milton, Massachusetts. He was raised in Connecticut. He went to Greenwich Country Day School and Phillips Academy in Massachusetts and Yale University. And he was a, an extremely aggressive advocate of birth control. The law repealing, um, the law prohibiting sending birth control material through the mails was uh, one of the things he did. Later, as a U.S. ambassador to the U.N., wrote the forward to a book on the need to address the population crisis. And he was one of the people that influenced the Nixon administration to come up with the infamous National Security Memorandum 200, authored by Henry Kissinger, which made population control a foreign policy goal of the United States. By the way, Henry Kissinger was a Harvard professor who lived in Boston, Boston's Back Bay, so yet another New England connection. And, of course, in 1970, we see Father Robert Drinan, the Jesuit, is elected to Congress. He's pro-abortion. He uh, apparently lied to his Jesuit superior, saying he had the support of Cardinal Cushing, and then lied to Cardinal Cushing, saying he had the support of his Jesuit superiors, got into Congress, and became uh, an immediate advocate of abortion. And then Ted Kennedy, who was initially pro-life when he first ran, flipped, and we see a Catholic priest and the scion of the major Catholic political family in America both embracing abortion and birth control.
So again, New England led the way in terms of the errors of Russia, in terms of this demonic, really uh, Luciferian desire to destroy innocent human life. And in its eugenicist form, it also has consequences. They actually passed marriage laws saying people that were mentally disabled couldn't marry. Uh, and actually you had mainline Protestant churches refusing to marry people that were considered mentally disabled. So uh, again, sadly, New England with its high culture was corrupted early on and led the way in imposing these moral atrocities on the rest of the country. So hopefully I think the ultimate solution is the recovery of the Catholic faith. We saw the church in its preconciliar form oppose these. We also saw some faithful Catholic politicians who opposed these. Again, I mentioned James Michael Curley. John W. McCormick, who was the Speaker of the House uh, from 1962 to 1971, was actually attacked in the media for being pro-life in the 1950s. So you actually had someone who was willing to stand up. He was an early opponent of Margaret Sanger. And um, you actually had Catholic... Uh, Governor Edward J. King, a Democrat, by the way, was a daily communicant and a very, very strong proponent of the right to life in uh, Massachusetts. So you actually had Catholic politicians preconciliar in formation. So perhaps, again, uh, if we can reform the church and restore the traditional faith, we will create a cadre of political leaders who will be willing to oppose these evils. And we will also, of course, uh, evangelize and catechize Catholics to oppose these evils. But the uh, New England, as I said, sadly, it was not a case of destitution or of uh, poverty or of ignorance. It was actually the elite, highly, most elite, highly educated part of the country that embraced these evils. So we must, again, resort to our faith and to the most holy rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary in combating them. Thank you all very much. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. May it serve to make Our Lady's message of Fatima better known, loved, and obeyed by all. For more resources regarding Fatima and the Catholic faith, and to support this apostolate with your donations, we invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160 and may God reward you. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us.